Alexmas running around with them right here. Barbara, Susan, get them all out. Okay, so it looks like this. Second Timothy, Leanne needs it, bro, over here. All right, so uh, you guys, what is Second Timothy? Do you know why we're doing Second Timothy now? Do you know? Uh, we did not do First Timothy last week, but it's a good guess. We did Mark last week, okay? Second Timothy is Paul's last letter. It's the final thing that Paul added to the canon, and so I saved it till now. It's the last letter of Paul. And we're not done, but it's our last Pauline epistle. And you guys, we're close, actually. Somebody asked me, what do we have left? Do you have a sense of what we have left, what we haven't done? We haven't done Hebrews. We haven't done Revelation. I'm saving those for the very end, Hebrews and Revelation. What else are we missing? Can you t- it's hard to notice what you don't have, right? We haven't done, did somebody say Psalms? Did somebody just say that? We're not doing the Psalms, okay? Um, we haven't done 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. We haven't done Hebrews or Revelation, and I think that's it. I, I, may, I might be wrong. I'll have to check my notes, but I think that's all that's left. So we're going to do today, we're going to close out Paul's epistles, which is kind of no small thing, and then we'll do 1 John, 2 and 3 John, and then Hebrews and Revelation. And Hebrew, I've got to tell you the truth, like, these things take a little while to pull together. Hebrews and Revelation are going to be a nightmare. It's going to take so long. So I might stall a little bit. We might do a little review or something because I might need a little more time to get those things ready. So, but it's all coming. So, we're, but tonight or today, rather, it's just going to be Second, Second Timothy. So, what do you know about Second Timothy other than the fact that it's the final letter that Paul wrote? You know anything about this grand letter to Tim? What do you got here, Eric? It's very personal. Okay, that's good. And there's, there's maybe a couple of touches to the, to the personalness of it, right? Um, first of all, who's it written to? Timothy. Timothy, right? Did you notice this? All the letters in the New Testament that are uh, named after somebody are named after the author. John wrote John. James wrote James. Peter wrote Peter. Except Paul wrote so many letters that we name his after the recipients, right? It's just a little bit of a different kind of inversion of the, of the you know, the way it's formulated. Um, but he wrote to Timothy. And who is Timothy to Paul? His son in the faith. His son in the faith. That's a great way to phrase it, right? It, Timothy is his favorite. Timothy is his number one protege. Um, he loves all these people. There's a million people that Paul commends and that he adores. He loves the Thessalonians, all kinds of folks. But Timothy is his guy. Timothy is the one to whom he's going to entrust his mission, actually in this very letter. And so Timothy is both incredibly personal, very, very close to Paul. But what's the other reason that the letter has such a personal vibe? Do you know, Chris? Is it at all because of his own persecution? Yes, absolutely. Now, Paul has been, Chris just said, is it because of Paul's own persecution? Paul's persecution, frankly, pervades all of his letters. I mean, all the time. He's always in prison. If you read through the book of Acts, there's so much suffering in his life. When he writes Philippians, that's one of his jail epistles. He's literally in prison when he writes it. And so there's a little bit, you're like, well, I mean, so what about that? He's in jail all the time. He's pretty used to it. But this time, Paul has an impending sense of his own death. And he is sad he is lonely, and so he's writing out of a place. It's, it's a pretty tender letter. He's writing to someone who is very close and important to him at a time that he is he's pretty discouraged. Now, he's also 
filled with faith and optimism. We'll, we'll look at this kind of funny little double-mindedness to that. But it's a, it's a very tender letter. So yes, Eric, you're exactly right. What else do you guys know about 2 Timothy? Chris. Sorry. It's all right? It's kind of, I, I think it's, it's got a verse that can, can be used, whether correctly or incorrectly, about election. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Is that it? Or? About God um, granting Oh, okay. Yes, okay. So Chris says it has a passage that can be used correctly or incorrectly about election, okay? Which feels like a little of a provocative way to frame that. I would say what it, what it is, is for my money, probably it is the most uh, insightful passage on how salvation works. Do you remember, like years and years ago, there were, they used to have this, um, why don't you call it a doll, but this model of the human body, and it was called the visible man. Anybody old enough to remember that? It was like a human being without any skin, and you could see like, you know, the musculature or the organs or the bone. Remember this thing? All the old people remember this? Okay. There is, there is a passage uh, in this thing that is like the visible salvation. Normally, you just like say, oh, look, that person became a Christian but they've got all their skin on. But there's a passage here, we'll, we'll, look, we'll get to it in a minute, in 2 Timothy where it's like they peel the skin back and now you can be like, it's like lifting the hood of the car. It's like, oh, that's what's actually happening. I can see the particulars of what you're doing. It's really very extraordinary. And I would say it's one of the most central passages to understand the, the, the mechanism of salvation. So yes, we will, we'll look at that for sure. Anything else? 2 Timothy, what you know about it? Or what you love about it? Anything? Then I'm going to tell you everything. Okay, no, yep. I think that because Paul is facing his own death. Yeah. And he sees beyond and he sees what's going on in the world. Well, he's entrusted. It's like he's handing it off to Timothy. And he's giving him instruction of what is the most important. This is important. Yes. And to Timothy to pass it on and... Yes. Okay, Ellen's exactly right. Okay, this is the passing of the baton. Not only does Paul know that he's dying, that his life is drawing near to an end, it's where he has this famous sense of, I've, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, you know, fought the good fight. All. He's like, I did it. But it's, it's kind of the, uh, um, to thee from failing hands we throw the torch. He is passing the baton to Timothy to say, finish the game, okay? And it's within that, as he's calling him to finish the game, that, that that actually gives all sorts of context to why he talks about the things that he talks about. We, uh, and there are things here that we have taken and t- from 2 Timothy that have been really defining characteristics of how ministry gets done. If, you're, if you have a Campus Crusade background, as I do, or maybe a Young Life background, if, you, if you've ever been in a place that really is very focused on the making of disciples, one of our absolutely central passages is from 2 Timothy. It's 2 Timothy 2, 2. Have any of you guys memorized 2 Timothy 2, 2? Was this like pounded into your head? I've read it, seen it, written it, talked about it, sketched it nine billion times. 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. This is the essence of what Paul is communicating to Timothy. Is You can hear four generations. There's Paul, then there's Timothy, and then there's reliable men, 
and then there's others. And this notion that Paul was basically the strategy. Paul's dying and he can't share the gospel with very many more people. But someday there's going to be a bunch of you in Roanoke. How are we going to get the, how is he going to telegraph the gospel from, you know, whatever this is, A.D. 69 or something, whatever Paul is, I don't even know what year Paul dies. But, you know, in the first century, all the way to the other side of the planet, 2,000 years later, the answer is 2 Timothy 2.2. Tell it to somebody and tell them to tell somebody and, tell, and build into the very gospel mechanism the passing on of this. This notion that the gospel came to you on the way to somebody else that is embedded in 2 Timothy. This is how the job is going to get done. We're not only reconciled, but necessarily we are reconcilers. And so this is, I'm done here. I'm passing the baton. You're going to have to get the job done. And not just Timothy, but Timothy's Timothy. And Timothy's Timothy's Timothy all the way down to you. And the gospel came to you as well on the way to somebody else. Okay, very, very good. Okay, one more thing before I start walking through this more orderly. Second Timothy, anything you're sitting on? Two Tim, two Tim. Okay, let's take a look. Go to the start of it. Um, there are three, I've, I've preached, I did an overview sermon on this. So some of this might feel a little bit reviewed. It's been a while. There's three primary buckets that you could organize Timothy's, or Paul's content of this letter, right? They are suffer for the gospel, take the hit, it's going to be hard, just stay in the game. Number two, the false teachers are coming. And number three, I'm sad and lonely. If you read through the book, you'll see these things recur over and over and over. They are the three primary strands to the book. So things like this. He says, I, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Do you know why? Do you guys remember? This is a little bit of First Timothy why does Paul's communication to his dear protege, Timothy, often kind of have this buck up, be a man, go after it, don't be a sissy vibe to it? You know what was going on with Timothy? He is not bad. He was just young. He was young, right? You got it. So in, when, when Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy is the man. He is faithful. He is just the best. But he's young, and it's hard to be like a 28-year-old rebuking a 46-year-old, right? It is hard to be young going after this. And so when he writes to Timothy, there's very often going to have this thing. But he's also going to tell him things like, don't be ashamed, join with me in suffering, guard the deposit, be strong in the grace, endure hardship, endure everything, be prepared in season and out of season. That means be ready to go when it's easy. Be ready to go when it's hard, and there's going to be a lot of hard, but it's worth it, Timothy, so stay in the game, right? So if you go through, if you read Timothy this week, 2 Timothy, watch for that. You might highlight these passages, and then you might even think in your own life, okay, right now, today, are we in season? Well, not we, are you? Is it in season or is it out of season? There will be moments when the wind is at your back and the opportunities are so rich. I, I was just talking to one of my former fellows, Jason Pelletier. Uh, he's teaching, he's a professor at uh, High Point University, and it is in season for Jason right now. He's having so much fun. He started a new campus ministry at a school, and in, all, in his career and his ministry and all these things, his wife is pregnant with her second kid, and he just feels the wind at his back. It is in season, and he's making good use of the opportunities. It's just so fun to listen to him. But you and I both know it will not always remain so, right? 
there's going to be a time where somebody on the administration of, this, of the university starts giving them grief, and they're going to have to make a different set of decisions. They've got to figure out, like, and that's how it is. Timothy is telling us, like, there's going to be easy days, there's going to be hard days. Stay in the game, no matter what, right? Major theme throughout this book. Second thing they want you to see is the false teachers are coming. Look at what he says. Warn them against quarreling about words. Avoid godless chatter. There's these ungodly people whose teaching spreads like gangrene. There's going to be foolish and stupid arguments. Does that resonate for anybody? Foolish and stupid arguments that produce quarrels. Those that have a form of godliness but deny its power. This is an interesting little line. It might not be obvious what he's talking about. He says, there are these people who worm their way into homes and they gain control. In this instance, over weak-willed women loaded down with sins. There's always going to be people that are opportunists that are seeking to manipulate those that have some kind of fragility and they're going to take advantage of them. Be ready for it. There are evil men. There are imposters who deceive and are being deceived. And then his kind of final, this maybe is the kind of final punch on this, is the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Right? Paul is warning Timothy, hey, there's going to be people that are going to give you more money to say false things. They're going to leave your church going to leave these communities that you're leading if you don't get off this path. But just, just deal with it. Just take it. We will not trim our sails to what the itching ears want to hear, right? That's been relevant for centuries. We, we're conscious of how it's relevant today, but it's been relevant through the centuries. So suffer for the gospel. The false teachers are coming. You need to be ready. Prepare your people. And then finally, as Eric was alluding to, Paul is suffering terribly. It's been just a miserable time. What are the things, can you remember from knowing 2 Timothy, why is Timothy so discouraged at this moment? Do you know that, like, what's been going on for him in particular that is, puts him in such a low spirit? Did I say Timothy? I meant Paul. Thank you, Gina. Uh, what's going on for Paul that's, that has him so low? Lily? In part, he's isolated. Yes. He was under house arrest. You know, his friends were still. Yep. And now he's just devastatingly alone. And everyone has left him except for um, Timothy and Mark, I guess. And he's just, he's kind of desolate. That's, Lily's exactly right. Paul is isolated. He's lonely. Go to chapter 4. In fact, you can just go in your actual Bible to chapter 4. I want you to see this as, he plays, as, as this thing plays out. Uh, let's see, where will we even start? Let's start at verse 9. Hear this. Do your best, 2 Timothy 4, 9. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, Demas, I don't know how to say his name. Because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Oh, and when you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas because I'm freezing to death. And my scrolls, especially the parchment. Then he goes on. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. 
And then verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. You feel the vibe of this? Everyone deserted me in verse 16. Alexander's messing things. Some guys, he, he sent Tychicus away on mission, right? That's not a bad thing, but he's still lonely, right? Um, Christians and Titus are gone, again, on mission, but there's, it's still lonely. Just ask Quig what it's like to plant a church and have all these families that you love leave, right? It's a good thing. We rejoice in it, but we miss them when they're gone, right? Uh, and then some of them have bailed. Demas has deserted me, gone to Thessalonica, everyone's so Paul has experienced an enormous amount of loneliness and the thing is you guys when when he's in this it's not only that he's lonely it's not just that he is doesn't have a friend to play cards with or something but the question is is the mission going to succeed right what is Paul's tell me this what is Paul's most uh detailed description of his own suffering it's not in second Timothy where would you go if you wanted to see the, the highlights of all that Paul has suffered? You can watch it happen in Acts, but where does he describe it? Second Corinthians. Excellent. Second Corinthians, exactly right. Do you know what? Um, Beaten with rods. Yeah, exactly. Do you know where that is? Go, go to chapter 11. Go to Second Corinthians 11. Uh... 2 Corinthians 11 is Paul's primary like list. Just listen to it, but don't zone out. I want you to hear the end of the list, okay? So he says, we'll, st we'll start up verse 23. So 2 Corinthians 11, 23. Uh, he's talking about all these other kind of his competition in some sense. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind. To, he's like embarrassed to do this. I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more. Then he says, I've worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers." I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then look at his clincher. Okay, that's a pretty good list, right? Here's the biggie. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn. What are you saying? All the things that I suffer, and it's a pretty good list. The worst thing about it all is that I lay in bed at night thinking, are they going to walk with him? Are they going to stay faithful? Are they going to preach the gospel? Will the multitudes who don't yet know Christ hear how sweet he is in a way that is winsome and compelling and meaningful to them? Or is all of this suffering for nothing? And as he's writing this final letter to Timothy, he's like, everyone in the, he says, in the province of Asia. That's a big, that's a lot of people, right? Everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. And he's experiencing, as he's writing this letter, 
the overwhelming sense of, man, I have laid it, I have left it all on the field. And how's the story going to go? And it's in that moment, he says, Timothy, it's on you. Take it. Take the baton and finish the job. Do you feel, this is a very significant letter. And the good news is that Timothy's faithful. In fact, do you guys know what the biggest evidence we have that Timothy was faithful? It's a funny little thing. It's not in 2 Timothy. Um, beyond the fact that the gospel made it to us, okay, there's that. You could just say, well, the story continues. But do you know within the scriptures, the, the biggest evidence that, Paul, that, that Timothy got the job done? Revelation chapter 2. Yes, Gary. That's exactly right. Expand that. Gary said Revelation chapter, well, I would say chapter 1 and 2 and 3, but yes. What, what are you saying? Jesus told John to write to the church at Ephesus. Yes, very good. So if you guys go look, and, and not only that letter, if you go to the first three chapters of Revelation, some of you have like a print Bible, some of you, you know, old-fashioned types. Um, and if you have a map that shows you the letters to the church, that where, where all these cities are, that it, you know what I'm talking about, and there's seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Galatians isn't on there, right? It's not like... All of these normal Pauline places. What you find is a semicircle of churches that are it's Ephesus and then this ring around Ephesus. And the general presumption is that those churches, these are late churches, right? Revelation's written near the end of the game, were probably all church plants from Ephesus. Timothy's at Ephesus. They did the job. They were faithful there. And then you see this next concentric ring. It's, it's kind of like, you know, we, so there's Church of the Holy Spirit, and then there's like Orchard Hills, and there's Restoration, and there's the river, right? And we're like helping to plant churches around us. That's what Timothy gets done. And they finish it, and the gospel continues to spread. So Paul's last kind of passing of the baton, it actually worked. But as he lay dying, he's, he's in this mix of saying things like, he's going to say, oh, I lost my place. He's going to say, I'll never find it back. There we go. Um, he'll say in the very beginning of chapter 4, here it is. Here's the baton. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. You feel the weight of solemnity to that, right? Preach the word. That's the job. Be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He's calling him to do it. And then he's going to say, after the whole thing is done, in verse 18, or we'll start in verse 17, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, despite all the misery, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Paul believes that God has given him the success that he intended to give him and that he's going to bring him all the way home. He's still a little nervous about things. Timothy, get it done. But his ultimate faith is that God is going to prevail. And as we read this letter, I think I want, I want to feel and I hope that you will feel that he is passing the baton to you. That this reality of the gospel being preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations before the end comes, is just as active today as it was when Paul wrote the letter. He's inviting us to join in this job, believing that we, filled with the Spirit, will do what he's called us to do. Right? That's what this letter is about. Catherine. Um, a special part for me is when he says, please bring Mark to me because he has been so helpful 
in my ministry. That's encouraging to me because it's restoration. Yes. Forgiveness there's and he believes in him. And so he's just putting this, putting this inside of Matthew. I mean. So Catherine's referring to this thing, if you guys were here last week for Mark, remember Mark, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, had this huge dispute. If you weren't here, um, well, I don't know if you have your notes, but I'll just read, read to you from this. Uh, let's see. So the way that I summarized it for Mark is uh, Mark in Acts 12, 25, was a missionary companion of Paul and Barnabas. When Paul and Barnabas finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. But Mark screws it all up. And in chapter 13 and chapter 15 of Acts, it says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John, this is Mark, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. He quit. He pulled out. Barnabas then wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and did not continue with them in the work. And so then it ends up that they have this huge dispute. I don't think I recorded that. That's funny that I didn't write that down. But, but uh, Paul, Paul and Barnabas end up having a fight about it, and they're gone. But then right here, what we, what we get in 2 Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. He had previously said in Colossians 4, um, uh, let's see, you've received instruction about Mark. If he comes to you, welcome him. Um, they've, he's, he's proved a comfort to me. So Mark is absolutely re, reinstated and restored, but not before. There was a really significant break. When Paul and Barnabas split up, that's like, ugh, that's sketchy, right? So yeah, so we have that, we have that touch into those kind of things. And let me, let me, let me double, tap, or double click off that. I listed here for you, cast of characters. Um, I've, I've told you before that you, I, there cannot be anyone in this room as bad as me at noticing names and stories and narratives. Like, literally, and it's just the worst thing. It's been true my whole life. I just skip all proper nouns when I read. And that leaves you with such an outrageous deficit, okay? So when I read stories, I'm always getting confused because I'm like, ah, who is this one again? I just don't log the names, okay? I have to, like, force myself to pay attention to who is this character. And if I'm watching a movie, I don't know anybody's names. It's just like the that blonde guy, or there's that girl with the limp, you know, whatever it is. And when you do that, do that, that's bad in all stories, but it's really bad in the scriptures. These characters that are described here, over and over again, they're described in other books. And if you can notice, oh, 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 this is the same person that was mentioned here, is mentioned here. When you can take all of these letters and shove them back into where they fit in the framework of the book of Acts, or when you can recognize that, oh, this mark and it's confusing when Mark is John and John is Mark and his name is John Mark. Just can't give him a name, buddy, okay? But like when you can link those things together and catch and like weave through, you realize this is actually a coherent story. And these are real people up for whom real things are happening. So be better than I am at the name thing and notice like, oh, the Titus who goes to Dalmatia is the same Titus that goes to Crete. How, do, how does this whole thing work out? Because there are every once in a while, there are absolute gems when you realize, oh, oh, oh. This guy was this guy. That's, it's amazing. So Romans 16 is a great place to mine for names. There's so many people that he mentions. But very often at the end of his letters, he'll, he'll, he'll do these. Don't skip them. Like someday just get curious and start seeing where these things go. Okay, Scott? Do you know anything about this Alexander? I, no, some, some 
He's just some bad news. Let me see. I don't think. Hang on a second. Let me, let me go real quick. Kelly, he, he shows up in 1 Timothy as well. Yeah, okay, here it is. It's 1 Timothy 1.20. So here's context for this. 1 Timothy 1.20 says, I'm going to butcher these weird names. We'll start in verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith with good conscience. Here it is. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Okay? When he uses that language, Scott, of handing him over to Satan, do you know what that means? Do you know what we mean when we say that? How does one hand somebody over to Satan? Would you like to know how to do that? <laughs> we all would, wouldn't we? What, is that, what does that mean? Um, is it exclusion knowledge? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's, it's basically excommunication. That if you're going to function like a non-believer, we're going we're gonna to affirm that you are not a believer. So what that tells us is that he once was part of the community of believers. He was part of this gathered, gathered body, but he became so abusive and so difficult that Paul excommunicated him. And then I'm going to guess that Alexander didn't like that very much, right? And he made it difficult on him. So we, don't, we have those, little, those two touch points. I don't know any more than, than those, all right? All right. Was there another hand that I missed something? No, no, no. Okay. What is it? Okay. So then here's the last thing I want you to see. Um, We already said this. He believes his death is near. This is not typical of Paul. This is not his standard mode of being. He's often suffering, but he's also suffering and expecting future ministry. I I just listed a couple of things. He talks about his suffering. You'll see them there from Romans and Philippians and 1 Thess. Um, This is new. What's happening in 2 Timothy is different. He really is like, it's time to land the plane here, right? And so you've got to take it. But here's the things, this, this little box, the three things that I did not budget my time very well for, how salvation works. Here's our visible man. Watch what is happening. It's stunning. It's surprising. I would not have known this if, I had, if, if Paul didn't write this. Look at what he says here at the end of chapter 2. He says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Okay, now when he says that, you got to know, he's actually referring to, he's alluding to the servant songs from Isaiah. There are these four passages in Isaiah that describe this Messiah who would come. So Isaiah 42 and 49, 50, on, on a climactic one is 53, where, uh, which you probably know Isaiah 53, this suffering servant. What Paul is doing is he's saying what Jesus was, we will become. We are going to be like him. We are his servants. But then he describes how we, the servants who are imitating the Messiah, are to behave. Listen to this. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. This is about as close as Paul is going to get to giving any rules for elders and deacons in 2 Timothy. Right? He really doesn't. We have lists in 1 Tim. We have lists in Titus. Here he simply says... You've got to be kind, able to teach, not resentful. And watch this. Those who oppose him, that is unbelievers, people that are, are, who are pushing back against the spread of the gospel, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance. That should be a showstopper right there. Because the one thing that is required of us if we're going to come to Christ in faith and to come under his mercy is that we need to repent. And what Paul is revealing is that 
even that is a gift. Do you, have you ever experienced that? Like your ability to soften your own heart and to realize that you're in sin. It's like, I don't have, I just don't have the lever for that. But he says, yeah, I know, me neither. But God, who is merciful, doesn't only accept the repentant, but he grants the repentance, which is really, really humiliating if you pause for a second, but it's also really good news. So we are to be kind. We are to instruct gently. We are to teach. We are not to be resentful. And we're to do all these things in the hope that God grants repentance. And what happens from that is that these people, these opposition, the opposition is led to a knowledge of the truth. That they come to their senses and they escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, some of you grew up, we all... Very few of us grew up Anglican. Most of you grew up, you know, Baptist, Presbyterian, and we all find our way to Holy Spirit. So you probably have different starting points to this. There is a prevailing idea that human beings have a free will, that we can do whatever we want to do. And those two statements are not the same thing. <laughs> do we have a free will? Absolutely not. Can we do, do we do whatever we want to do? That's the only thing we are able to do. Heroin addicts, are free to take heroin, right? And sinners are free to sin. We have a constrained freedom. We function within our nature. Fish are free to swim, and sinners are free to sin. But it is incredibly difficult, yea, even impossible, to do otherwise until God in his mercy sets us free. And Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. But we begin this game. We're, we are. The Bible never affirms that human beings are ultimately free. It says that we're slaves. We're slaves to sin. Go through Romans 6. It's so clear that we are in slavery to sin. And what Paul is describing here in this visible man passage is that God grants repentance to the unrepentant. And he grants freedom to slaves. We are, you are not doing your will. You are doing Satan's will prior to this freedom. This is what he's describing here is what the great non-Calvinist songwriter Charles Wesley said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Imprisoned, fast bound. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What Paul is describing here is how does salvation work? It is God acts upon enslaved persons to grant them freedom. He acts upon unrepentant people to grant them repentance. We could look at the same thing in Ephesians 2. You could look at it in, in Peter's writings. That even faith itself is a gift. And what Paul is describing here is the radical, humiliating, monergistic act of God. He is the actor we are the acted upon. And we are to walk around this world having been set free. Because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. We who have been set free, we who have become repentant, we to whom he has granted faith, should never look down on those that don't have faith. Faith is a gift, right? And we who are the recipients of such a bounty of undeserved love and mercy, grace, should move towards those that have not yet received that gift with kindness with gentleness, 
with clarity to instruct, and we do it all in the hope that God would use those things to grant repentance, that God would lead them out of this trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. This should be our demeanor toward not just lost people in general, but towards our very opposition, right? It's an incredibly insightful passage about how the game works, and it's easy to forget it. It's easy to forget that you were given repentance, that you were given faith, that you've been set free, and to look down your nose at others, but Woe to us if we forget that we live in a sea of grace. Dig it? Amen. Really important. Okay, next thing. Success of the mission. I already hit this briefly. God's word is not chained. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation. Paul believes in the success of his ministry. He just knows it's going to hurt. He just knows it's going to be really hard. He just knows that everywhere he goes there will be a revival. But the revivals are purchased by riots. So we preach. We take the hit. We suffer believing that God's purposes will prevail and that he is the, one, the God who is sovereign over the end is sovereign over the means. And he has decided that this gospel will spread through the suffering of his people. And that's just the deal. So sign up, whatever inconvenience, whatever cost you bear, that's what we're doing. And then finally, finally, because we're almost out of time, this is also 2 Timothy has one of the most important passages on the nature of the scriptures. It is. What is, the, what is the word that Paul invents here to describe the scriptures? God breathed. Theonustos. He makes up a term that, the, that this Bible, this thing is breathed by God. When, when I'm speaking to you, all I'm doing is breathing. But I'm forcing my breath through a, a series of interrupters, right? To phonate and articulate and do all these things. He's saying that God's word is him breathing. It is spoken by him to be received by us by faith. And so if you go through that passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16, that whole section there says, continue of what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the line. All scripture is God-breathed, theonustos, and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it is because we believe that that is true that we think it's worth making it our point, making it a point to read this thing. I want to know what it says. I want to learn it. I want to memorize it. I want to study it. I want to talk about it. I want to apply it because I really don't, I don't think it's simply some letter written by some guy who's sad in prison, but it is from God to you. It's filled with treasure for you to find. All right, 2 Timothy, ready? So read it this week, or if you want to get ahead of the game, we'll be in 1 John next week. Thanks for coming.